1971, John Lennon wrote a song. It begins this way. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Now, I know a lot of people hear that song and there's some emotional like nostalgia with that and a lot of people think, oh that's so deep that's so good I, I love what Alistair Begg said about that whenever somebody says like Lenin was some great philosophical thinker remind them that he also wrote cuckoo kachoo I am the walrus all right so it's not the case and not only is it bad philosophy it's not true there is a heaven above us. There is a hell beneath. There is a heaven to gain. There is a hell to shun. There is a world to come. And that's what we've seen in Zechariah 14. Specifically, we focused, didn't we, last time on that second coming when Christ returns. Verse 5 says, The Lord, my God, shall come and all his holy ones with him. The perfect reign of the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, the Lord over all, there in verse 9. Today, verses 12 to 21, we're going to cover that entire plot again. Only this time, there's some nuances. There's some more details that are given. Uh, we get a fuller picture of the world that lies ahead of us. Notice, there's an alternating pattern between two destinies. Two destinies. And, and these two destinies are before all men. Two destinies that await in the world to come. Verses 12 to 15, there's this chilling picture of the wrath of God. The wrath of God on the wicked. Then, jump all the way down to the end, verses 20 and 21, there's this picture of God's blessing. His people. There's blessing and holiness for his people. It's a great picture of what heaven will be like. But between those two, in verses 16 to 19, there's this great distinguishing mark of what it is that separates these two destinies. The destiny of everyone is, is established either to eternal judgment or to receive glorious blessing in the bliss of heaven by this great distinguishing mark in verses 16 to 19. So, let's walk through those three things. First off, the picture of hell, this picture of God's wrath there in verses 12 to 15. So remember, when this chapter opened, chapter 14 opened, remember uh, the enemies of God's people were oppressing the people of God. They were persecuting the people of God. And how were they doing it? Verses 1 and 2, they were plundering, there was oppression, there was abuse. And God's people were suffering this at the hands of their enemy. But then, in verse 3, there's this great intervention. Remember that he is the warrior God, and he comes to intervene for his people. He comes to fight for his people. He comes to execute judgment on his enemies and the enemies of his people. Now, verses 12 to 15, 
goes back to that moment. What is that going to look like? What is it going to look like to suffer the wrath of the Lamb? The wrath of Jesus. When he comes to judge the living and the dead, what will it look like to suffer his wrath? Notice there's three parts in these verses of what this judgment looks like. First, there's bodily disintegration. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall rot while they're still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Now, I was just saying, that's as chilling of a description as you'll ever find in the, in the scriptures. Chilling. Matter of fact, it crossed my mind as I'm laying in bed last night, knowing that I'm going to preach on this, that some kid in our congregation probably has this paper, and there is a box that says, draw something that you have heard about in the sermon. And I thought, well, these kids are really going to have a lot to draw about. Flesh rotting off the bones. Eyeballs rotting in their sockets. Tongues rotting in their mouths. Chilling. The enemies of God's people overtaken by this plague. And they are, uh, they're completely powerless. They could fight against God's people, right? They could persecute God's people. But against this power, against the power of Almighty God, they could do nothing. So this is this gruesome description. I mean, if it wasn't God's word, it, it would be out of place to speak this way in a sermon, I think. But it is in the scriptures, flesh dissolving, eyes, uh, just bodies disintegrating, eyes and tongues rotting. It's grotesque. It's a terrible picture. But that picture is completely consistent with the descriptions that we see in the New Testament concerning the realities that await the unrepentant sinner. The, the realities that face the unrepentant sinner as they face the wrath and the curse of Almighty God. So, just pause. Today, if you are not a Christian, I want you to, right from the get-go, no. This is the destiny that awaits you. God's wrath. Curse. This is not manipulative language by... Um, uh, the old preacher man, this is what God's word says. This is what awaits those who are not God's people. This is God's word. And unless you repent, and unless you believe the gospel, and unless you flee to Jesus Christ for refuge, this is what you get. You know, no one spoke more clearly and terribly about the wrath to come, then did Jesus, the Christ, the Lord, the one who brings the goodness and sweetness of the gospel. He didn't hide the horror and the reality and truth about hell. Hell which he died to rescue us from. He didn't hide the reality of it. He spoke very clearly about it. It's hard to look at. It's hard to read things like rotting flesh, eyes, tongues. But we have to look at it. 
Otherwise, we're going to fool ourselves. We're going to remain in some kind. If you're a Christian, if you don't read things like that, you're going to remain in some kind of slumber and never share the gospel if you don't really believe that this is what awaits unbelievers. Matthew chapter 8, in verse 12, when Jesus says that there's, they're cast in the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Or Luke 13, verse 19. Remember the story? You got Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus goes on, and the rich man suffers in torment, and he longs for the fingertip. Uh, just Abraham with just some water on, on his fingertip to come and just touch my tongue just to cool it a little bit. Torment and flame and darkness and fire and thirst. These are descriptions that the Lord gives concerning the judgment to come. Jesus, sweet and gentle and meek and mild, he uses this kind of language to describe what's to come to the unbeliever. The realities of hell, the horrors of judgment. Someone, and maybe you even wrestle with it, is this even real? I mean, is this kind of language real? That's a good question. I assure you that these words are metaphors, but they describe something far worse, not less than what you read. What is waiting is utter bodily, personal disintegration for everyone who rejects Jesus. There will be suffering and weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you reject Christ to be your king, you will, and this is the New Testament word, you will perish. Blackness. Judgment. Forever. Bodily disintegration. Notice verse 13. There is this relational disintegration. So this scene is played out in the life of Israel over and over again. Right When divine judgment comes upon the enemies of his people, we see this very thing happen. You saw it in Judges chapter 7 with Gideon, right? Where the men of Midian, they turn in a panic and they all destroy one another as the people of God shout and sing God's praises. This happens time and again. You see it with King Jehoshaphat as he sings praises to God while the men of Ammon and Moab, they destroy the men of Seir and then they turn and they all destroy themselves in 2 Chronicles first 20, or chapter 20. This plays out time and again. This is a mark of the judgment of Almighty God. It's this breaking down of human relationships, of closeness. It's, it's this, not only are we alienated from God, but we're alienated from one another. You know, hell is that. We are alienated from the loving presence of God in hell, but we are also alienated from, and we will find no comfort from, other people. There'll be no comfort there. No common grace. Hell is loneliness. Hostility. Not to, just towards God, but towards everyone else. That's part of the imagery of outer darkness. Loneliness. Separatedness. 
So hell may be populated with a, a vast company of people, but every one of those people, every one of those souls could not be more alone. And then notice the material disintegration, verses 14 and 15. So back in 1 and 2, this is what they did to God's people. They persecuted, they plundered the goods of, the, of God's people. But now, when Jesus comes to judge, the material things, the, the material things that the world pursues and lives for and delights in, the material things that society holds up is, is, is it. The things that we would stop at nothing to obtain. They, all those things, it's all going to be stripped away, isn't it? Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. Remember the parable of the talents? How this merchant gives to all of his servants uh, various amounts of money, and uh, they are to invest that. And when he returns, the one who has brought uh, um, um, uh, 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 a return on it is rewarded, but the servant who makes no return, remember when Jesus says, take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, do you take the talent from him and place him into outer darkness. If you live for the things of this world, it's going to all be taken from you. All of it. The trinkets that we live for. The things that our hearts crave. The things you run to and long for. The things that you substitute for Christ. You say, my satisfaction, my delight is in this thing. It's going to be taken from you. It's going to be taken. You're not, it's not permanent. It's transient. It's going to go like dust through your fingers. If you're found outside of Christ, it's all going to be stripped away and you're going to be bankrupt and broken and barren. This is a terrible picture, isn't it? Bodily, relationally, materially. Well, let's quickly, let's look at the other side, the other end of our text. Let's look at God's blessing and holiness, this marvelous picture of what heaven will be, verses 20 through 21. And notice the point of these verses, universal holiness. Everything, right? Holiness is just common here. Remember back in chapter 3 when uh, Zechariah had the vision of uh, uh, Joshua the high priest and he had these filthy garments on and Satan comes, he's accusing Joshua before the Lord and the Lord in his justifying mercy, he, he, he 
takes away the filthy garments from, from Joshua. He clothes the priest in fine and white linen. And in the midst of his own vision, Zechariah interrupts and yells, Don't forget the turban! And we say, why is, he, why is he so worried about the turban? And the reason was that on the priest's turban was inscribed the words, Holy to the Lord. So it was all unfilthiness, all filthiness, gone. All of it, gone. And now at the very end of the book, Zechariah comes back, Holy to the Lord. And now it's not just inscribed on a turban. It's inscribed on everything. Holy to the Lord. The world is holy to the Lord. The bells on the horse's bridle, holy to the Lord. Pots, uh, kitchenware, holy and sacred. Purity, the, the radiance of Christ shining through everything. Shine in the heart of all activity. Sin completely removed. Sin gone. Everything. Sin eradicated. Everything holy to the Lord. Child of God, think of that. If you labored, if you fought with sin, those besetting sins, you, hey, there will be a day when you will be perfectly unendingly holy before the Lord. Unendingly. When the work is done, when the battle is over, there'll be no sin, there'll be no possibility of sin. On that day, in that place, no unrighteousness, no wickedness at all. Holy to the Lord. Flip over, look at Revelation 21. Revelation 21, starting in verse 26. This is speaking about the eschaton, right? So here's verse 26. They will bring the into it the glory and the honor of the nations. A little bit confusing. What's going? I I think what's happening here. Everything that's good here will continue to be good, but all its focus, its 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 centerpiece will be the worship of the Lamb. But Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Look down, um, verse, chapter 22, verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Everything holy, everything consecrated to the Lord, everything to worship him. All the world filled with joyous worship. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're looking for. No wickedness, no sin. I, want, I do want to ask this question, though. Could you be happy in that kind of place? And I say that not as being trite. That's a real question. Can, could you be happy in a place that's perfectly holy? Do you pursue holiness now? Now, nobody ever earns their place in heaven by the pursuit of holiness. 
But I do have a question. How could you be happy in a holy place if it doesn't mean anything to you now? If you're not desiring it, if you're not pressing towards it, how could you be happy in a home of righteousness when you don't care about righteousness? If holiness is not your, the great pursuit of your life, how, how could you say you would love it? Why do you want to go to heaven? Is it just because it's better than the alternative? Why? If God is there, Revelation 22, God is there, who is holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. Could you be happy in that place? Could you? Heaven is a holy place. The Holy One is there. And when we see our Savior, we'll be made like him. Oh, the blessing that awaits, the glory that awaits. Look at the third section, though. This distinguishing mark. What is it that distinguishes the curse, the wrath of the Lamb, the, 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 the curse, the picture of hell, and that picture of heaven when everything is holy to the Lord? Verses 16 to 19. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if a family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there will be no rain. And there shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt. And the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. Two groups of people. There, ever since the fall, there have been two groups of people. And only two groups of people. Those who come to worship and those who refuse to worship. That's, that's the two groups. Those who bend the knee in joy and faith. In Christ and those who do not. Those are the two groups. Now, this particular celebration that Zechariah is talking about is the Feast of Booths. Say, what's this? Do we all become Jewish? Well, let's, let's understand what the Feast of Booths is a harvest festival. And by identifying people from all these nations who are coming to worship, I understand this to be a harvest of nations. They're coming to worship. A harvest of people and souls to worship from every language and every nation under the heavens. Every, every, every tribe coming to worship. And what is their great occupation? Year after year, what is their eternal business? The adoration of the Lamb. Praising God. That is what they're about. That's what they're on and on about. They're singing, hallelujah, praise the Lamb. 
Glory to the great eye. This is what they are about. This is their worship eternally. They were once steeped in opposition. These nations were once steeped in opposition. And now they get to come up as true worshipers going up to bless the Lord. That's what they get to do. But others refuse. Others say no. Others will not praise the Savior's name. Others will not worship. And on them, what happens? The curse of God falls. In this section, set the withholding of rain. You say, what's a little drought? Well, in their world, it's ruin. It's strange. You may have wondered, why is he, why is he, why is he, uh, why is he on Egypt's case here? What's Egypt got to do with this? With this holding, withholding of rain, well, not even human ingenuity is going to help them out. Because, you know, even without much rain in Egypt, their ingenuity would cause irrigation to go from the Nile to feed their crops. But guess what? Human ingenuity is not going to help you against the curse and wrath of God. No one will escape if they will not worship. No one will escape if they will not bend the knee to Christ. And so here's the great dilemma. Here it is. Perishing rebels, uh, judgment, deprived of all blessing, dwelling in outer darkness, the curse of God. That's one group. And then there's another group, God's people, glorified, rejoicing, rejoicing forever, worshiping in a new creation where everything in that creation is holy to the Lord. And what's the great determining factor? What's, what's the distinguishing mark between these two groups, glory and darkness, blessing and curse, heaven and hell? Whether or not they will bend the knee to Christ to bow in adoration and delight or persist as rebels. That's, that's the mark. The issue is the issue that will decide your destiny. How do you respond to Christ? How do you? How do you understand Christ? What do you look to Christ for? So, if I can, I just want to set before you the glory and the beauty of Christ. This is Christ who took all the wrath and curse and, 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 and uh, uh, wrath of God in our place as our substitute, right? The personal, the bodily curse. He, he took it upon himself that he, on Calvary, suffered for us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So the horror of the curse of God landing on Christ instead of us. Materially, everything is stripped from Christ, doesn't it? Even what he does have, his, his, his garments, they're stripped from him and they, are, uh, they cast lots for his clothing. All his possessions taken from him. He took the curse of God for us. 
What about relationally? Yeah, he came to his own and his own received him not. He was betrayed with a kiss. All his disciples fled and abandoned him. The world was against him and mocked him and condemned him and crucified him. Yeah, he knows what it is to have had relational disintegration. He faced it all down. He took all of it. And he took all of it so that I can stand here and proclaim to you today that hell's horrors need never to touch you. Hell's horrors need never to come upon you. You need never to bear the torments of hell. The fury of the flames of hell have been quenched for all those who bend the knee to Christ. The hell of the cross, there Christ slammed, closed the gates of hell, and he opened wide the doors of heaven for anyone and everyone who will trust in him. This is what Christ has done. He has taken that curse in our place. So there is no need for you to be dispatched into outer darkness, but to dwell in the light of the Lord forever. Are you unholy? This morning, are you unholy? Well, come to the Holy One. Come to the Holy One. He has made provision. He cleanses you. He will change you so that one day, inscribed forever on you, will be these words, holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. And there is no barrier except your own rebellion. There's no barrier but your own rebellion. Give it up. Surrender. Come. Trust in Christ. Turn from your sin. Flee from the horrors and the tragedy. Bunyan's pilgrim. Flee from the wrath to come. Turn and come rest on Christ. There is a heaven to gain and hell to shun. Sorry, Mr. Lennon. You are not a great philosopher, and you are even worse at telling the truth. It, heaven and hell is not the imagination of some creative minds. It's not the hopes of some dreamer that is going to ultimately find peace. The deciding factor of where your destiny is is how you respond to Christ. Look to him and live. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we praise you for the gospel of Christ. One in which we have rebelled against We've rebelled against your law. We've rebelled against your person, your nature. We have shaken our fist at you, but you in your mercy and grace have sent your son to redeem us. So, Lord, every believer in this room, may our hearts be moved with the sacrifice of Christ. May it cause and well up in us and produce lives of obedience. Obedience 
to pursue holiness now in the fear of the Lord without which no man shall see the Lord. May that be the fruit in our lives. May it create in us a longing as, as we so wrestle with our own sin. May it, a longing for that day when Christ appears and nothing wicked will be in that place. And we'll be completely changed. And, and even the, while even now we're not under the reign of sin, there is remaining sin. But that day, it'll all be removed and it'll all be holy to the Lord. That day, completely consecrated to you. And for your glory. And our greatest desire, our greatest uh, uh, pursuit will be to serve you and to glorify you. And enjoy you forever and ever. And Lord, for those here who are not in Christ, I pray that they've heard clearly the wrath that is to come. Would you, by your Spirit, open blind eyes and may they see their sin for what it is and may they see Christ as the only Savior where refuge is found. And may they run to him and find peace and safety and eternal bliss. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.